0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's name your price tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: This is The Pulse Stories about the People and Places at the Heart of Health and Science. I'm Mike and Scott. In 1972, during the Apollo 17 mission, astronauts captured one of the most iconic images of our planet.
2: They looked back at Earth, and the sun was fully illuminating it, so you can see the full circle of Earth. And they called that image the blue marble.
1: That's physicist and oceanographer Helen Chersky.
2: And it matters because those are the sorts of images that we got. They were printed in newspapers, and then people said, Oh, we're a blue planet. That's the point we're a blue planet. Helen
1: says that blue, the ocean, is the defining feature of our planet. More than 70% of the planet is covered by water. It's something we've known, but Helen says the image, seeing the planet from a great distance, really drove this fact home. But still, we often fail to understand or appreciate the importance of all that water.
2: When we think we're talking about the ocean, the blue, the blue of our blue planet, what we're almost always talking about is what's in it, fish or whales or pollution. And actually, the water itself is where the really big story is. And we're never talking about that bit. And that kind of, you know, bugs me a bit, obviously.
1: Helen says we've often viewed the oceans as something we have to cross to reach faraway lands as a place to wage wars, or as a habitat for marine life. But she argues that we have to understand what the water itself does and how critical it is to our climate system. In her new book, The Blue Machine, How the Ocean Works, she sheds some light on this.
2: It's about the engine that is the framework for everything else.
1: On this episode, understanding the inner workings of the ocean and what they can teach us about protecting the planet. We'll hear about efforts to restore coral reefs using sound, and we'll find out why scientists are looking for time capsules at the bottom of the ocean. To start, let's stick with physicist Helen Chersky and her new book, The Blue Machine. Helen started her career studying everyday things.
2: I wanted to understand the physics of things I could play with.
1: And she researched explosives, not because she liked to blow things up.
2: But it was a way of building experiments that let me look at things that were just too small and too fast for a human to see. But it was going on kind of right underneath your nose.
1: Then she discovered something going on right underneath her own nose that she had never truly appreciated. She had started to study bubbles, how they form and when they explode. She got a job at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. And there she saw something in the lab that piqued her interest.
2: There was this great big frame by the door, this sort of metal thing that was maybe two meters by two meters and a meter and a half tall. And I didn't really pay it much attention, but they were sort of fussing over it. Everyone else in the lab was kind of fussing over it. And after I'd been there three weeks, they opened the big lab doors and they took this frame and they carried it out down into the ocean.
1: They were lowering this big frame into the ocean to measure the number and size of bubbles under the surface. The frame had a camera system they called the bubble cam.
2: And then I realized that the reason they were doing it was that this was their gateway to another world. You know, I'm always slightly suspicious of nice, neat turning points in stories in real life. But there was this kind of moment where I was like, oh, no one's ever told me what's inside the ocean. And this is clearly important. I got it. This is clearly important. And And then I was indignant. Why is it that I've done all these degrees in physics and I've done all this stuff and I've read all these books and no one has ever told me about the ocean? You know, it was astonishing. And so then I set out to learn. And I'd learned to scuba dive and I'd went out on researched ships and I became an oceanographer by the back door, effectively. But it was really interesting that I had to be sort of dunked into it almost literally before <laughs> I saw it. And then, yeah, and then it's been driving me nuts ever since that no one really talks about it. There's lots of books about the fish in the ocean and the whales and the pollution. And there are no books about the ocean itself. And how ridiculous is that? Anyway, as you can tell, this is quite a, a bee in my bonnet. And why do you think...
1: That is. You know, it seems like from the earliest days, humans have looked up into the sky, have tried to understand how our solar system works, how temperatures change, how climate works eventually, all of those things. How come we have looked to the ocean more as a pathway to go from point A to point B or for a place to go fishing or a place to be scared of?
2: So I think there's two reasons. And the first one is kind of the great tragedy of the ocean at the same time as being the thing that dictates how the whole thing works which is that light does not travel very well through water. And that sounds kind of strange because, you know, I've got a glass of water sitting in front of me right now and I can see right through it. But when you put lots of water together, light does not travel very far. Even in the clearest seas, perhaps a couple of hundred meters, it's not a long way. So you've got the whole great depths of the ocean and you can't just shine a torch down there to see what's going on because the light just gets absorbed. In the ocean, you need sound to find out what's happening a long way away. We're not dolphins and whales that can use sound like that, so we just ignore it. But the other reason I think we don't talk about it is that it's many, many things. It does very big things and it does very small things and it does very fast things and it does very slow things and it means different things to people, to different cultures, and it matters differently in different places. And so it matters in so many different ways that it's kind of hard to hold it all in your head. It's kind of hard to say the ocean is this because it's also all these other things.
1: For the purpose of the book, which is called The Blue Machine, you look at the ocean, at least to some extent, as this machine. So why are you calling it a machine and what are the parts of the machine?
2: So I think the the reason it's important to think of it at least some of the time as a machine is because things are physically moving around and the way that they move and the physics behind it is what provides the environment for life and it's what carries nutrients around and it's what sets the context for all the other things that the ocean does and where life can be and what happens in it, right? This is wonderful fluid engine here that is doing things and it's interesting and beautiful and intricate because a liquid engine is much more interesting than an engine made of steel.
1: Helen says the Blue Machine is an engine that converts sunlight into movement, life and complexity. It's complex because the water has different temperatures and levels of salinity. And it's spread over a spinning planet.
2: You know, you get layers that are quite striking, that are different from each other and that don't mix, you know, like the layers in a posh cocktail. And you get these currents that move horizontally in quite specific patterns. It's systematic. You know, there are things going on. And of course, the reason it's so interesting is because the land gets in the way, because it stops water moving in the direction it might otherwise go. And so you add all these beautiful additional complications. So you introduce features into the engine, like the Gulf Stream, for example. Fundamentally, before anything else, the Gulf Stream is there because North America is there in the way, (laughs) you know, and Europe is on the other side in the way. And (laughs) so that sets up the conditions to get something really interesting, which is this fast, warm current that's going out across the North Atlantic.
1: When currents hit a landmass, they form circular patterns, gyres. The Gulf Stream is part of a gyre, and it ends up bringing warm water from the Gulf of Mexico into the Atlantic Ocean. And Helen says these many complex features of the oceans shape habitats and how life develops.
2: So once you've seen that the engine has these shapes and it's got these components in different places, then you can see that, you know, if you're a tuna, for example, you're a very powerful predator, you've got the stamina to go wherever you want to go and hunt in the ocean, where do you go? Will you go looking for some of these features? Because that's where the life is. You know, to us, it just looks like water and more water and other water. But actually, if you can see it the way an oceanographer or a tuna does, you know, depending on the nutrients that are in it, depending on its temperature and its salinity, and the life that's in it, suddenly, you can see, it's kind of like x-ray vision, you can see all these layers and all this intricacy and you can see what it's doing.
1: Why and how does the ocean move? We all know it does, right? Everybody who's ever been to the ocean can see it move. We can feel the current, we can feel the force of the waves. How does that happen?
2: So there's a few, I guess, off the top of my head, I can think of three major reasons. So the first one actually is the tides, which which I don't talk about very much in the book. They obviously matter. And people see the impact of those at the coast quite a lot. Out in the middle of the ocean, the tides are a little bit less important when it comes to movement. So then there's two things. There's horizontal movement and there's vertical movement. And the ocean... When you really think about it, on average, it's around four kilometres deep. But the distance from the North Pole to the South Pole is 40,000 kilometres. So this is a really thin skin that's covering the planet. And most of the movement in it is horizontal because these layers have different densities. And so you don't get very much mixing up and down. But where you do, the reason you get it is that you've generated some dense water somewhere and then the dense water sinks downwards ...to whatever depth it finds, you know, water of a similar density... ...and then it spreads out along that line. So vertical movement is caused by changes in density... ...and that's due to changes in temperature and salinity. So for example, as water, you know, around the Gulf Stream... ...the warm water coming around there, it's warm as it moves north... And then it's cooled because it moves into colder regions to the north and it loses lots of heat. Mm-hmm. And then it's salty, and then so it's dense, so it sinks. So you get vertical mo- motion for that reason. Then, of course, it will come back up somewhere else, sometimes centuries later. And then you get horizontal movement fundamentally because of the wind. So, you know, the wind blows on the surface, and as well as pushing up waves, it, it kind of pushes currents. Uh, pushes water around at the surface. So so you get these horizontal currents at the surface. So the ocean is moving all the time. And one of the biggest things it's moving around, um, apart from nutrients and life and all of that, is heat. So it's a massive store of energy. And overall, you know, it's helping very slowly to move energy from the equator towards the poles. And all the while,
1: the Earth is also moving and spinning. So how does that impact the oceans?
2: Oh, well, the ocean, I mean, this fluid engine, the thing that makes it really beautiful is the fact that it's on a spinning planet. (laughs) So I'm sure any ocean would be very nice, but the spinning is what brings the beauty because the spinning along with that comes the Coriolis effect. You know, you sometimes see this on a merry-go-round, it's like a carousel. If you stand and you try and throw a ball across to the other side while it's rotating, you've got friends standing across, you know, on the other side. If you try and throw the ball in a straight line, it looks like it curves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it curves because it's not moving with the roundabout. It's freely in the air. It it can move wherever it's going to go. But if you're on the roundabout, it looks like it's curving. So that's the Coriolis effect. And the reason it's interesting on the planet is that if you've got all these currents, this water moving around, nothing stops the water, you know, it's just got to respond to the Earth's spin. So if it moves north a bit in the Northern Hemisphere, it will get pushed to the right. And that generates swirls. And this is what makes the ocean beautiful, is that you get swirls everywhere. You get big swirls, these massive ocean gyres, and you get little swirls that are, you know, relatively small, you know, a few kilometres across at the ocean surface. And the ocean is full of swirls. One of the Main
1: features that we notice as, as humans off the ocean is that it's salty. So you write in the book that if you took a bathtub full of seawater, it would have about five kilograms of salt, like a big bucket full of salt in it. How is that salt important?
2: You know, ask a small child, what do you know about the sea? And they'll say it's salty and it's wet and and those are actually the two most important things about the sea and you'll notice it's got some temperature and and really all, all the physics of the ocean comes from those three things it's 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 got temperature it's salty and it's wet and salt in the ocean is interesting because it's it's not just like uh, sodium chloride which is common table salt mm-hmm. it's it's got some sodium and some chloride but it's got quite a lot of other things in it as well manganese and iodides and carbonates and things like that so there's quite a lot of different salts uh, magnesium that kind of thing so salt is that there's a mixture of different atoms ions that make up the salt but that mix is the same everywhere almost identically salt in the ocean is the same everywhere the ocean it does have a lot of salt in it. I think I can't just remember the statistic, but I think if you evaporated the whole ocean, you'd have a layer about 64 meters deep left just of salt. You know, there's a lot of salt in there. And it matters because it changes the density of the water. It changes how it moves. But interestingly, it's not about where the salt goes, it's where the water goes. Because if you're in the Mediterranean, for example, it's a nice warm place. So there's salt in the seawater, that's all right. But then you get lots of evaporation. So the water goes away because it's warm and it evaporates from the surface. But then because it's hot, you know, the rivers flowing in, they're not very big rivers. You know, there's a lot of evaporation. So you don't get much fresh water in to replace the water that went out. So the Mediterranean is a really salty sea. So the, the the salinity changes not because of what the salt is doing, but because of the amount of water that's coming and going, changing the dilution of the mixture. And then the thing that matters most about salt is it makes seawater dense. So the salinity affects where water sits in the water column. You know, does it sink downwards or does it stay at the surface? Because it's fresh and it's buoyant. If you ask an oceanographer about a, a water mass, the two things they want to know are the temperature and the salinity, because that's like the fundamental character. And where
1: did the salt come from?
2: So it's a good question. And the first person who asked this question was Aristotle. So it's got a a good long heritage (laughs) of great thinkers thinking about this problem. Uh, Now, Aristotle didn't get the answer right. He thought that the sun, the sunshine somehow made the water salty. And that kind of stayed as the received wisdom until Robert Boyle came along in the 1600s, who is an English scientist famous for Thinking about lots of interesting things, but he wrote a tract called On the Saltness of the Sea. This was the period when experiments were getting going. So he tested out Aristotle's theory. He put some seawater, some fresh water in the sun that didn't go salty. So he said, Well, that's rubbish, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and he, you know, he was very adventurous in his experiments, but he didn't have enough data. Um, and we know now that the sea is salty for two reasons. One of them is that the rocks that are formed, granite, the the stuff the continents are made of, you know, those rocks, when rain falls on that, and especially at some past eras of Earth's history, the rain that falls is slightly acidic. And so it kind of dissolves away the rocks and it will dissolve away some of the components of salt. So some of them come in just having dissolved off the land and they run into rivers and they run into the ocean. and, And that's been happening over Earth's history. The other place that components of salt come from is volcanoes, underwater volcanoes, which are kind of belching things out. And that's where the chloride comes from.
1: Helen Chersky is an associate professor of mechanical engineering at University College London. Her new book is called The Blue Machine, How the Ocean Works. Coming up, a scientist's daring expedition changes our view of the deep oceans.
2: He said it's like being dangled in a hollow pea from the roof of a cathedral.
1: That's next on The Pulse.
3: Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at amgen.com.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing visit your local rei co-op or rei.com for the million and one ways to opt outside
3: this message comes from npr sponsor shopify the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to customize your online store to your style sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash npr
1: listen to embedded for moments that stay with you I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate.
3: <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the inner workings of the oceans and what we're learning about the vast waters that cover more than 70% of our planet. When scientists study the depth of the oceans, they use submersibles that can descend to about 35,000 feet. They are fortified capsules that create a small island of habitable space. In 2014, I talked to marine biologist Eric Cordes while he was on the research submersible Alvin. He was studying coral reefs.
2: Hi, Michael. Uh, we are down at about a little over 500
4: meters on the seafloor in the
5: Gulf
6: of
4: Mexico.
5: We are looking at
6: some uh, deep sea coral
4: right outside our
6: porthole here.
4: So we're sitting in front of what I would describe as a coral garden. We see some crabs crawling around looking for little bits of food. And there's all hard coral botellia a species that we've been working on.
1: This field of inquiry, traveling the depth of the ocean, really started almost a hundred years ago with a daring scientist named William Beebe. Physicist Helen Chersky writes about him in her new book, The Blue Machine, How the Ocean Works.
2: So I like William Beebe because he was a (laughs) biologist and he had this sort of fascination with the deep sea. And he, he wrote about the idea of going into the deep sea, but it was just a pipe dream until a guy called Otis Barton, who was an engineer and who had money, which was important, got in touch with him and said, oh, I I might be interested in building something like that. So there was the two of them. It was this double act of Otis Barton and William Beebe. And what Barton built was called the bathysphere. And it was a metal sphere I think perhaps a couple of metres across, with this tiny round entrance hole and then these three tiny windows, except that I think one of them cracked after a while. So then there were two tiny round windows. And it was basically dangled off the side of a ship on a long rope. You know, the two of them squeezed in through the hole. They had some stuff in there that would absorb carbon dioxide, this kind of very primitive carbon dioxide scrubber. And then they sat in there and Beebe sat with his face, you know, kind of up against the window and Barton, you know, kept everything running. And they were the first people to see the deep sea as it really was. And before then, of course, people had fished things out of the deep sea, but then they come up kind of dead and squished and damaged by the net. Whereas William Beebe went down and saw, you know, these amazing ocean creatures in their natural habitat, in the darkness of the ocean. And he had this wonderful phrase for it. He said... Um, It's like being dangled in a hollow pea from the roof of a cathedral, which is such a beautiful image because all he could do was watch and just be amazed and he had time to think about it. And the way they ran the system, he had a telephone to the surface and there was a stenographer, you know, someone keeping notes at the surface and she was writing down everything that he was saying and everything that he was describing.
1: All the while he was totally aware of what would happen if this little pea that he is sitting in would malfunction. I mean, he knew how much pressure there was. He knew it could be over in an instant.
2: Yeah. And that. so they did do tests where they sort of lowered it over the side, you know, to check it was going to survive the pressure. And uh, at least one of those times it came back with a cracked quartz window and the whole thing had flooded. And so they were doing the best they could with what they had at the time, but it was not he needed to be on board with the risk, basically. Mm-hmm. That this was, like you say, if, any, if a single thing had failed, then, then it was over, that was it. I think he wasn't doing it because of the risk. And Otis Barton, by all accounts, certainly hated the risk. <laughs> um, he wasn't up for dying in the deep. But what BB did was he shared what he did. He came back and he did it in order to share. He was a writer, in any case, you know, he wrote magazine articles and all that kind of thing. And he wrote about it in order to share what he'd seen.
1: Here's an excerpt from William Beebe's book called Half Mile Down.
5: We were the first living men to look out at the strange illumination. And it was stranger than any imagination could have conceived. It was of an indefinable translucent blue, quite unlike anything I have ever seen in the upper world. And it excited our optic nerves in a most confusing manner.
1: And what was Bibi's vision for a future life under the sea?
2: So his book Half Mile Down, which I highly recommend, it starts off with this wonderful sort of image of him imagining what it will be like when everyone understands the sea. So in the same way that science fiction writing about what it might be if humans could fly to the stars or fly to the moon, do all these things. And he starts off by saying, well, imagine this world where You've got a back garden that backs onto the coast. Scuba hadn't been invented really then. (laughs) But, you know, you go into the sea and you take your pencils and your pens and your paper and you do your drawing in the sea. You have a party in the sea. It's just an extension of your back garden. And he sort of paints this picture of people going into the sea as a normal thing to enjoy the environment, just like they'd walk into a beautiful garden.
1: That's physicist Helen Chersky. Her new book is called The Blue Machine, How the Ocean Works. Some scientists are looking to the bottom of the ocean as a time capsule containing detailed information about the Earth's history going back millions and millions of years. Embedded in layers of sand and sediment are clues that researchers can evaluate to learn what the ocean and air temperatures were and even how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere back then. This field of study is called paleoceanography, and one of its founders was the late Sir Nicholas Shackleton. He had plans to collect huge amounts of sediment off the coast of Portugal, but he died in 2006 before he could finish the this project, the goal was to create a continuous record of the Earth's climate history. Amy Mayer boarded a ship with a team of scientists in 2022, who set out to finally complete this work.
7: We're all gathered on deck, shivering in the cold as the research vessel Joyd's Resolution gets ready to ship out. The scientists around me are excited for their grand adventure. This expedition has been 13 years in the making. Deckhands bring in the massive ropes that have tethered us to a dock. Tugboats pull the 470-foot ship toward the open ocean. And the port of Lisbon disappears in the distance. The International Ocean Discovery Program's Expedition 397 is underway. But we're not going that far. After about 12 hours, we come to a stop. We're maybe 100 miles from the Portuguese coast. Geologists call this area the Iberian margin. Over the next two months, we'll be sitting at four distinct spots, drilling down into the ocean floor and pulling back up those columns of mud called sediment cores. The Joydee's Resolution is a floating 1970s oil rig completely remodeled in the 80s to drill for science instead of fossil fuels. Towering on its deck is a 200-foot tall derrick. It's a big, open, ladder-like pyramid, what you might see on an oil field. The ship carries a mile's worth of pipe that gets pieced together section by section. Those pieces form what's called the drill string. it turns and turns, making its way from the top of the tower through a hole in the ship. Then it plunges through 15,000 feet of water all the way to the bottom of the ocean. Once it reaches the sea floor, it drills into that sediment, starting a hole. Next, the crew drops a 30-foot-long plastic tube into the pipe. When that enters the hole, it pushes deeper until its entire length is filled with mud. After that tube comes back up, the drillers drop the next one into the pipe. One by one they go ever deeper into the hole, more than 1,500 feet into this sediment. The reason we're drilling in this location is that the seafloor here has a high sedimentation rate. That's the speed at which sand, pollen, and tiny critters settle onto the seafloor creating, over millennia, the layers of information the scientists are looking for. That process here is about 10 times faster than in other parts of the ocean. David Hodell of the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom is one of two co-chief scientists trying to accomplish the work Nick Shackleton started. One day, in one of the ship's least noisy labs, David told me about the groundbreaking work Nick Shackleton did in this very location in the 1990s. On that trip, Nick didn't have the kind of equipment this ship has, so he couldn't dig nearly as deep. But he made a startling discovery.
6: He demonstrated that the uh, surface record uh, looked exactly like Greenland, and the benthic, the bottom record, looked exactly like Antarctica.
7: David says Nick realized the mud he dug up from just beneath the ocean floor revealed the same details as had been found in ice cores.
6: It must have been like a Eureka moment to say, aha, you know, this looks, you know, exactly like the Greenland ice core record. And this looks like the ionic ice core record.
3: It takes
7: a lot of chemical analyses and hours at microscopes to analyze samples. But David says there's no other spot in the world's oceans that captures records like these.
6: It's kind of mind-blowing a bit that, you know, one, you know, one place in the ocean, one sediment core can have, links and components to both of the poles as well as the European continent. But that's what makes this Iberian margin so special.
7: Before Nick's discovery, details about polar air and water temperatures came from ice cores. That meant researchers could only study conditions as far back as there was ice—800,000 years in Antarctica and less than 150,000 years in Greenland. Now they can use the sediment from here to create a picture of what the poles were like when Earth was a lot warmer. That will help make current climate models more robust. A better understanding of past climates might also help people prepare for the changes that are coming. It's why Nick Shackleton wanted to drill here and get mud that's millions of years old.
6: And so we're just kind of fulfilling, I feel, you know, his, his wish, <laughs> his dream.
7: The late scientist's work, even his spirit, looms large over this mission. The other co-chief scientist, Fatima Abranche, is a researcher at the Portuguese Institute of Sea and Atmosphere. She sailed with Nick Shackleton in the mid-1990s. She says they basically worked around the clock, pulling up cores and taking samples to study.
3: We would be four hours working, four hours sampling, four hours resting, four hours It was like four, four, four. And we sampled also together, the two of us. And uh, it was a lot of fun.
7: His groundbreaking work inspired many, including the two dozen scientists Fatima and David gathered to drill the Iberian margin and unlock their own discoveries. They hope to show how the Earth's climate changed every 1,000 years over the past three to four million years. That's a super detailed record. They may also learn how those layers of mud document changes in Earth's orbit. We've been at sea for two weeks, seeing tube after tube of mud come up from the bottom, as many as 50 per hole, and we do several holes at each location. Every hour or two, the drill crew is handing cores off to science technicians. They carefully measure each core and cut it into three to four foot long sections. The sections begin the journey through the ship's many labs on tracks that feed the cylinders into different machines. After that, the technicians split them lengthwise. This stuff
6: right here, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's be cool. that's, cool. that's
7: cool. At last, the cores are splayed open, exposed to human eyes for the first time. Each core is different. They have blue, from blue sediments to totally white chalk Full of forams, to reddish sediments full of class. Forams, or foraminifera, and nanofossils help establish roughly what time period the sediment comes from. Quickly, it becomes clear the scientists have far exceeded the goal of three to five million year old mud. In the core description lab, Jerry McManus from Columbia University sees unexpected things in the mud. We
6: suddenly Recovered several cores that were quite a bit older than that, older than 10 million years, maybe 14 million years. And they were spectacularly variable.
7: Light and dark layers of greens and browns with all sorts of goodies inside.
6: In the sands were big chunks of mollusk shells and, and things that clearly would have tumbled down from somewhere very close. To the shore or very close to the surface. And this was all a big surprise, and, and these were beautiful sediments.
7: After two months at sea, the scientists gathered to bring in the final core.
1: We're Come and get the core
7: of Everyone's a little giddy. They've collected four miles worth of mud. Three days later, tugs pull us into the port of Tarragona, Spain. Pallets of cores are shipped off to labs and the scientists head home. The seafaring adventure is over and the group has planned many intertwined projects. Co-Chief David Hodel cautions they could take a while. There
6: might be some splashing flashy things that, uh, that emerge, you know, you know, shortly after the expedition. But I'm more interested in kind of the slow burn stuff.
7: The studies that might take years or decades. The youngest members of this crew will mentor another generation of paleoceanographers, further extending Nick Shackleton's legacy.
1: That story was reported by Amy Mayer. We're talking about the inner workings of the ocean— Coming up, using sound to lure fish back to dying coral reefs.
4: You know, uh, underwater disco type setup.
1: That's next on The Pulse.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Host a celebratory brunch for less with 365 by Whole Foods Market, featuring wallet-happy finds like cold-smoked Atlantic salmon and more. This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center. Every year, millions of people lose someone to cancer. But as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center ranked in the country's top 4%, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center is unrelenting in finding new ways to understand, detect, treat, and prevent cancer. Unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. Learn more at MasseyCancerCenter.org comprehensive.
3: Support for NPR and the following message come from Satva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional
1: $200. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the inner workings of the ocean. Coral reefs are some of the most beautiful habitats in the ocean, and maybe surprisingly, also the noisiest.
4: When you put your head underwater on a coral reef, it is just an absolutely dizzying array of shapes and colors and noises and sounds. It's completely overwhelming.
1: That's marine biologist and coral reef researcher Tim Lamont from Lancaster University in England. Coral reefs are severely impacted by global warming, and Tim is one of the people trying to solve this issue. His approach is to use sound to determine the health of a reef and to restore reefs that have been damaged. The podcast The Wild with ecologist Chris Morgan recently featured Tim's work. Let's listen to an excerpt. Here's Chris. Fish,
8: shrimp. All the little creatures that call a reef home add to the sonic palette of the place. But as reefs become more unhealthy, life on them is becoming harder for Tim to hear.
4: One of the the things we discovered when the reefs were degrading was that they were going quieter, that the sort of, you know, this biological symphony was being silenced. As a knock-on effect of that, it was becoming less attractive to the next generation of fish.
8: The sounds of these watery ecosystems are becoming a very important tool for researchers like Tim. And he has an idea that might be key to helping these struggling coral reef ecosystems rebound. Tim did his doctoral dissertation work out on the Great Barrier Reef of Australia at a place called Lizard Island. It's a remote little island with a research station and a boat. Tim was there to record the sound of the reef using underwater microphones. Some of his colleagues had made recordings in the same spot a few years before. But something was
4: off this time. I saw this massive difference in the reef sound, uh, and I thought, oh, crumbs, I've botched up the recording. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I can barely hear a thing here. Um, Something's wrong, this reef should be really loud. I know that because I've got all the recordings that have been taken on it in previous years.
8: At the time, Tim was the junior scientist of the group and thought he must have set up the equipment wrong.
4: And, and then I sat down with, with my boss and we realised, like, no, actually, the, the equipment's working fine and, and he deployed it absolutely right. Uh, it's the reef that isn't noisy. Uh, that's what's changed.
8: The reef had experienced what's known as coral bleaching. That's when those bright, colourful corals lose their colour and turn white. It's caused by a microscopic algae called zooxanthellae. These algae live inside the coral, providing food for the coral in the form of carbohydrates. But if the water gets too warm, the coral stresses out and expels the algae. As the algae leaves, the coral fades until it looks like it's been bleached white. At which point, the coral's dead and the reef is fast on its way to becoming lifeless.
4: You know, it's like burning down an art gallery or something when when you lose those. There's something completely irreplaceable about losing an ecosystem that is as as beautiful and unique as a coral reef.
8: And the bleaching means the coral reefs lose more than just their colour. One big knock-on effect of this degradation is that the ecosystem loses health and fish leave. With fewer fish, there's less diversity, fewer species to depend upon each other, which leads to even more degradation. It becomes a vicious cycle. Sound plays a very important role in where fish live in coral reefs. When a young fish is born, it will immediately be swept out to the deep blue sea by the current, and it spends the first few weeks of life out there
4: because there's almost nothing out there that can eat them. You know, if they stay on the reef, they just get eaten by something when they're that small. And so they grow up and develop out in the open sea.
8: Leaving the coral reef as tiny hatchlings increases their odds of survival. Then, once they've reached the juvenile stage, these fish make the journey back to the reef and settle. By this time, they've grown a bit, and they're a less easy target for predators in the coral reef. This homecoming... Back to the reef is really important because the reef needs those fish to arrive because they're the next generation.
4: And so on this sort of odyssey through the open sea, uh, one of the ways in which fish find their way back home, is by listening. And that's because these reefs are noisy places. Uh, The sound travels really well underwater. And so from a distance away, these fish are able to detect where the reefs are, even make judgments about the habitat quality of those reefs, decide which one they want to go to, uh, and then home in, you know, homing by hearing, we sometimes call it, you know, and they're, they're listening in for the sound of the reef, swimming towards it, and then settling down there.
8: This homing by hearing... The fact that the fish are actually listening out for healthy coral reefs got Tim thinking. All over the world right now, there are efforts to rebuild reefs, where human-made structures are placed underwater, along with coral that's grown artificially in nurseries. Tim wondered if there was potential for sound to be used as part of this rebuilding effort.
4: In an area where you were rebuilding coral and where you were restoring the habitat, if you could advertise that restored habitat using sound, if you could play the sound of a healthy reef as well, might you get more fish coming back?
8: It's an idea that's been deployed before with seabirds, where ecologists place seabird dummies on restored cliffside habitat and then played the sound of seabirds to attract more seabirds. It's a bit like people being attracted to the nice, busy pub with atmosphere versus the one with no one in it.
4: Um, and, And so it's the same sort of idea. We're just trying to take it underwater.
8: So Tim spent a couple of months living in that small research station on Lizard Island to set up and test if the sounds of a healthy reef could be used to attract fish in. He set up some experimental reefs and little artificial patches of habitat and put in a DIY underwater speaker system
4: you know, uh, underwater disco type setup. Uh, we're actually using <laughs> the the loudspeakers that they use in swimming pools for synchronised swimmers so that they can hear no the music way. underwater. It was those loudspeakers wired into a, a motorcycle battery, which was all housed within a, a sort of canoeing, kayaking barrel um, that was then anchored to the seabed. And we used that system to to play the sound of a healthy reef on these habitat patches. <laughs>
8: Every day for a month and a half, Tim took his small research boat out to each of the areas of reef to monitor the fish. Most fish arrive overnight, so early each morning, Tim would do the rounds, documenting all the fish he saw.
4: You know, five new fish on this reef and count them up, and you know, then go to the next one, and then at the end of the experiment, um, we you know deconstructed the whole thing, put everything back where it was.
8: At the locations where Tim played the sounds of a healthy reef, Twice as many fish came back compared to areas that didn't have any sounds being played.
4: And so it really works like this sort of advertising beacon, you know, sort of roll up, roll up, nice place to live here, and, <laughs> and in they all come.
8: Okay, I've got, it begs the question then, so you've got this, uh, you've got a coral reef, and you are you are pulling in the fish to this coral reef that that is not blossoming and healthy. It's not in its healthiest state, right? When the fish arrive because you've attracted them with those sounds, don't they just leave when they find out that they've been duped?
4: Yeah, no, it's a a great question, and there's some important things in here. So firstly, to our surprise, they don't. They stay.
8: Being a small fish in a reef like this is dangerous. There are a lot of predators. Anything that can eat you will, if it can find you. So moving from place to place makes you easier to spot, and very vulnerable.
4: And so these fish arrive in the dead of night, they find somewhere to live on the reef, and then they just settle, and they hide away and they stay really close to the reef and where they can, where they can hide, and, and they don't go adventuring around other places. And so there's, there's, a, there's a very real sense in which once a fish has decided where its, its home is, that's where its home is.
8: And this is key, because if Tim's audio experiment continues as a tool for helping restore reefs, it has to go hand in hand with active rebuilding of reefs too. His underwater speaker systems will have to be combined with attempts to regrow coral and other work on ecosystem rehabilitation.
4: Because just attracting fish to an area that's you know degraded and rubbish that's not a solution you're just pulling in fish to an area that's still degraded and rubbish what this is better for is when you're restoring a habitat and you need the fish populations to then replenish it can accelerate that replenishment
8: in the world of conservation work new ideas or studies like tim are suggested all the time the ones that actually work and are beneficial are taken up and then used around the world the ones that don't work or are too much effort or money don't Tim says it's still too early to tell which camp his underwater speaker system will fall into, but he is hopeful it can be a successful part of the solution.
4: That although the rates of damage on coral reefs around the world are completely unprecedented, are are very fast, um, there are still reefs that for various reasons are hanging on. And, And there are still reefs that have demonstrated in the past an astonishing ability to bounce back.
8: And there are projects that have successfully built back areas of coral reefs that were dying. Tim says this all gives him reason to keep fighting in the face of climate change and warming oceans. But he also believes his recordings can be used for more than just coral reef management. He hopes they will motivate people.
4: We think these sounds are actually very emotionally powerful uh, in some contexts, and actually we found that People really can can engage with the plight of coral reefs worldwide. People can be quite moved by the the changing sound of an ecosystem.
8: Tim thinks about how the sound of whales singing grabbed people's attention back in the 80s, gave the whales a voice, and rallied people to the anti-whaling movement.
4: You know, it was used in music, it was used in art. Uh, And I think that there's I think there's something similar here that that we can use the the sound of a reef as an additional tool to help people emotionally connect with it and, and therefore act as an advocate for pro environmental solutions.
1: That was an excerpt from the podcast The Wild with Chris Morgan. It's a production of KUOW in Seattle and Chris Morgan Wildlife. It's produced by Matt Martin and Lucy Sushek, edited by Jim Gates with fact-checking by April Craig. The warming of the oceans from climate change is having ripple effects we're just beginning to truly grasp. And physicist Helen Chersky says that makes it even more important to understand the function of the ocean as an engine that absorbs sunlight and converts it into movement. In your mind, what are the biggest markers we need to pay attention to in terms of climate change and the ocean?
2: I think it's important that we understand what the ocean is before we talk about it changing. Because otherwise, there's this tendency towards panic. You know, if I tell you that all the krill in the Southern Ocean died this year... What do you do with that information, right? Is that super serious? Is that probably a bad thing? Is it a complete catastrophe? Or does it just happen sometimes? Why does it matter if the krill are there or not there? So a lot of the stories we're getting, which are very serious at the moment about the ocean, they just kind of instill panic, but they also instill a feeling of helplessness. And so I think actually understanding how the ocean works is a critical part of talking about what happens next, because then you can actually look at information and you can understand why you might might want to do one thing and not another so in terms of the things climate change is doing to the ocean which which make a lot more sense once you've put the whole thing in context the biggest thing really is that the ocean's warming up so climate change is basically all about energy accumulating in the earth system and you know there's a lot of energy you can store in water because water has a very high heat capacity so even though the ocean is warming what looks like quite slowly, it represents a huge amount of extra energy in the Earth's system. So over 90% of all the extra energy that is arriving at Earth and not leaving because of climate change is ending up in the ocean. And so that's a lot of extra energy that's around to fuel the weather, for example. You know, we know that hurricanes are fueled by the warm water underneath. That's where the energy comes from. But also, if you warm the surface, then you make the layering stronger. So it's much harder for cold water with lots of nutrients to escape upwards from underneath. You change the way the ocean engine turns if you change how much heat there is and where it's distributed. So there's these kind of structural things that the temperature increase isn't just about, oh, the water's a bit warmer. It's got the potential to change the structure of the engine. And that is definitely a problem. And then there's the other serious loss of biodiversity and you know pollution in the ocean and all of these things that affect ecology so there's a kind of twin things you know there's climate change and biodiversity loss they're the two big things but the really important thing to emphasize is that all of these are things we can do something about right reversing them might be a hard thing but we can definitely stop making them worse and there's this phrase by the great hawaiian navigator nainoa thompson that says if you don't understand it, you can't protect it, and you won't if you don't care. So we need to understand in order to be able to protect, but we also need to care about it.
1: Helen Chersky is a physicist and oceanographer. She's the author of The Blue Machine, How the Ocean Works. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening.
5: Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. care. WHYY's Health and Science Reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Linda Mood-Bell. Linda Mood-Bell's summer instruction for reading, comprehension, and math can help students catch up or get ahead. Summer instruction is designed to help children feel more confident, prepared, and excited about learning and school in the fall. Linda Mood-Bell's evidence-based approach is individualized for all types of students with challenges that affect learning, including dyslexia. Learn more at lindamoodbell.com NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time.
1: There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.